Amen. Uh, friends, uh, please remain standing while we read the passage that's going to uh, be the basis of our, my sermon today, which is taken from John chapter 4, verses 19 to 30. This is the word of God. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming and neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or what are you talking, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Amen. Please be seated. May the Lord add the, his riches, uh, not only to those who, read his word, but also listen and obey it, and may the Holy Spirit be pleased to engraft his words into all our hearts today. Friends, the title of my sermon today is True Versus False Worship. Now, there's a wonderful book written a few years ago by a writer named Gregory Beale. The title is We Become What We Worship, and the thesis of that book is pretty simple. It's, okay, it's there on the slide. What people revere, that is what people adore, what people worship, they resemble, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. So I just save you time reading that whole book. That's basically the thesis. He basically goes through in the book, throughout the scripture, to show that by nature, we all are worshipers. Everybody worships something or somebody. And that the way we worship or what we worship actually exposes who we are and changes who we are. He says in the book, we are either revering or adoring the world and are conformed to the sinful patterns of the world, the way the world lives, the way the world thinks, or we revere God, we adore God, we worship God and are progressively, that is, that is, over time, conformed to become more and more like him. Simply put, on the next slide, false worship is all about us and our agenda for God. And that can happen easily in churches, guys. You can come to church, you can worship, you can talk about God, you can sing here in the band, <laughs> lift up your hand, but it's all about me and my agenda for God. What can I get out of him? The dangers of false worship in the next slides, there, there, there are many, but here, here's just three to help you get thinking. Well, false worship breeds false confidence. If you worship falsely, for example, 
our confidence will be in our quote-unquote worship experience. Oh, I experienced a wonderful time of worship, which is not bad, but it's dangerous if it stops there. Or false confidence because our focus is more on the blessings we receive. Again, not a bad thing. It's good to be blessed when you worship, but it's dangerous if you stop there. False worship also breeds false disciples, false followers of Christ. There is whether us or people who come to our churches will get the wrong idea of the God we worship and what he demands of us. Because worship has become all about me and my agenda for God. But most seriously is that false worship brings damnation. I was just talking with my kids last night, happens to be talking about worship in our uh, evening devotion. And I said something along this line. The Bible condemns two things equally. That is, the Bible condemns the worship of false gods, that is, false idols, false belief system. But also, the Bible condemns worshiping the right God in the wrong way. And either one, those two things bring damnation. That is, false worship doesn't save. If you come to church, in fact, if you come to Jesus, and still thinking that life is all about me and my agenda for God, what Jesus can do for me. You're worshiping falsely, and that brings the nation. So that's the first five minutes of bad news. I'm pretty sure you're keen to hear, to know what, what then is true worship, and that's going to be the focus of our sermon today, thankfully. So on the next, next slide, that's pretty much like the big idea of today's sermon. So true worship reorients our lives to be less about us and more about Jesus and his mission. So less of me, less of us, and more about Jesus and his mission. And the question is, on the next slide, is how? Okay, hopefully this is one of the main questions in your mind. How can my worship be more about Jesus, how can my worship be more about his mission? Or in other words, how can we grow in true worship? I mean, guys, if you're content with false worship, if you're content coming to church, it's all about me, about what, uh, our agenda for God, you can please, you can just tune out. <laughs> you don't need to listen for the next 30 minutes or something, okay? If you're content with false worship, with just worshiping on the service, lifting hands, singing and all that, and go home and change, you're, you're free to tune out. But if you want to learn what true worship is, please stay tuned. So on the next slide, I'm, I've got a few words to help us anchor our thoughts today. So worship that is more about Jesus or true worship is, you have three words there, valid, vital, viral. Believe me, I work really hard to get this, these words. Um, yeah, biblically valid, spiritually vital, and personally viral. If this is still too hard for you, I've got other three words related, Bible, Jesus, people. It's on the next slide, I believe. So it's the same, okay? Biblically valid, spiritually vital, and personally viral. But I'm pretty sure valid, vital, and viral should be enough. Let's look at the first point. True worship is biblically Valid. That's verses 19 to 22. So true worship, in other words, it's founded on God's word, the Bible. Let's recap a little bit. Some of you may read 
or listen to this passage for the first time, or you probably forgot what was said last week. If you look in your Bible, this is a continuation um, of the first 18 verses, which is a conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And you may recall from last week, or if you look at the verses above, uh, above um, you know, verses 1 to 18, that the Samaritan woman, the woman, tries to find satisfaction from her failed relationships, her many marriages. But only Jesus gives true satisfaction by offering her life-giving water, that is, eternal life. On the next slide, I'm going to read briefly just the, the verses above it, so you have a bit of context once you come to this point. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. But that's only half truth, isn't it? For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I wonder when Jesus was saying those words, he was partly snickering or smiling to the woman. Well, Jesus shows his all-knowing, his omniscience, not to show off his power, not to say, here's all I know about you, but to show her that he knows her deeply. He knows her deeply enough to know how deep her pain and sinful past is. And instead of casting her out due to her unsavorable past, he's actually chasing her out. Chasing her, sorry. And here, we see that something apparently clicks in her head. She realizes that this random Jewish guy next to the well is not just a normal human being. Let's look at the next slide, starting verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on his mountain, she continues, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The woman then tries to divert the conversation from talking about her personal life, her sordid past, to talking about religion. And she's not just religion, but religious controversy, because back then there was a huge debate, apparently, between the Jews, so the Jews is the people where Jesus come from, the Jewish race, that is, and the Samaritan, which is the people where the woman come from. And the argument, apparently, is about what we are talking about today. It's about worship. And to be precise, the argument is simply about this. Where is the valid place to come to worship? Note what she says. Our fathers worship on this mountain versus you guys worship in Jerusalem. So simply put, the argument is about the proper place to worship. And amazingly, guys, if you look at the conversation, Jesus could, could have easily said, at least I would, hey, who taught you to change the subject? Let's get back talking about the guy you're living with. Let's dig deep into your past. But look at verse 21. Jesus, quote, unquote, follows her diversion, but also helps her to get clear in her thinking. 
He's basically saying that the debate over the proper place to worship, whether it's on this mountain or in Jerusalem, will soon no longer be relevant. In fact, Jesus picked up something that the woman mentioned earlier. This is not on the slide, but if you look, look up your Bible app, verse 12, the woman says, are you, talking to Jesus, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself and as did his son and his livestock. This is, by the way, in verse um, 21, yes, it's the first time when Jesus refers to the father in the conversation, obviously referring to God the father. He's saying that there's, there's a time, this is what he says about the hour, there's a time coming when worship is not about the right place, which we are going to see later in point two, but here Jesus is highlighting um, the problem that the woman or the Samaritans have, that their worship is false because they do not know God as their father. Look at verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. And the reason why they don't know God is because their worship is not founded on God's word, or at least not in God's word in its entirety. You see, the Samaritan, they believe in God, so they are not atheists. But the Bible that they had was only the first five books of the Old Testament. That is from Genesis to Deuteronomy. So their Bible is pretty thin if, if they had physical Bible, which they didn't. But they hold that these are the only place where God revealed himself. So, so naturally their knowledge of God is defective, false. Because their knowledge of God's word is defective and false. So the wor their worship is false because it's not biblically valid. It's not fully founded in God's word. It's not founded in God's fuller revelation in later parts of the Bible. And when Jesus says salvation is from the Jews, he's not saying that the Jewish people is somehow superior compared to other races. He's simply summing up God's fuller revelation in the Old Testament. I don't have time to cover all that, but basically what, what, what God is saying in the, in the later book after Genesis and Deuteronomy, he's saying out of all the nations um, of the world, God chose a particular people, that is the Jewish people, to be the means by which he would show his salvation, which ultimately is brought by his chosen Messiah who came from the Jewish people. So that's the danger of having your salvation not fully founded on the Bible. How many of you know the name George Foreman? George Foreman? Some of you. He used to be a former heavyweight boxing champion. He wrote a book a few years ago, God in My Corner, and he wrote this. In 1974, before I went to Africa to fight Muhammad Ali, so this was ages ago, you probably know Muhammad Ali, a friend gave me a Bible to take along on my trip. He said, George, keep this with you for good luck. I believe the Bible, George, uh, Foreman says, I believe the Bible was just a shepherd's handbook, probably because the only verse I, know, I knew was the Lord is my shepherd. But I was always looking for luck, so I carried that Bible with me. I had lucky pennies and good luck charms, so now I, now I added the lucky Bible to my collection of superstitious items. After I lost the fight, I threw the Bible away. I never even opened it. I thought, the Bible didn't help me win, so why do I need it? 
Friends, how many of us are like the Samaritan woman or George Foreman? We make worship all about us, what we like, how we feel. Our worship is shallow because we are not deeply rooted in the God of the Bible. It's one of the reasons why the Bible is front and center in our worship. We read the Bible, we sing the Bible, we pray the Bible, we learn from the Bible. But let me say you, that's not enough. If you'd like to reorient your life to be less me-centered, to be more Jesus-centered, to truly worship, you need to make the Bible priority in your lives. You need to stop knowing the Bible only partly or self-selectively, nice verses here and there, like the Samaritans maybe, or like George Foreman using the Bible only as good luck charm. Oh, you spoiled the, the slide, but that's okay. Thankfully, George Foreman's story doesn't end there. After that sentence, he said, I thought I'd get power simply from owning the Bible. I didn't realize that I needed to read it and believe what it says. Since then, I've, become, I've come to understand that the Bible is my roadmap, not my good luck charm. He's a born-again believer, by the way, George Foreman. So true worship must be biblically valid, must be grounded on the Bible, must be founded on God's word that we found in the Bible. And like Foreman says, it's a roadmap. But where is the map taking us? And that takes us to our next point. So valid, the next point is vital. True worship is spiritually vital, which means that true worship is focused on God's Messiah, that is Jesus. Let me read to you again verses 23. This is Jesus continuing his uh, response to the woman. But the hour is coming. This is the sec second time he says about the hour in this conversation. And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father and in spirit and in and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So the hour here is talking about a change in God's work in history. This is the time. This is what we call the redemptive history now taking a, a very important turn by the coming of Jesus. His birth and eventually his death, resurrection and ascension back to heaven is what makes worship no longer about a particular place, building, style of music, the way we worship, whether we put our hands in our pockets or raise our hands up in the air. It's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. God is seeking true worshipers that will worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit means it has to come from the depths of our hearts. And that's what the Holy Spirit does, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit changes us so deeply from reorienting our lives from self to God. And to worship in truth means that our worship must be real, must be authentic, not fake or pretentious, but also according, as we saw earlier, to God's word, according to the God as he is revealed in the Bible. Now we are accustomed to say, what a great worship, what a wonderful worship. And if I ask you, what do you mean? What's a great worship? You probably talk about the music, the band, the singer, the setup. Now these are important, but far less important than what God is after. If you ask God, 
he's not so much concerned about whether we have a great worship, but whether we have a true worship. Is it true? Is it done in spirit and in truth? You see, God is more interested in the worshiper than the place, the mode, the style, or even the production of worship. So your worship can be as simple as having nothing at all while you're driving down the highway or as elaborate as he have in some Sunday services. And in verse 24, we see that his very nature, God's very nature demands that kind of worship. Notice in verse 24, God is spirit. That is, he's not confined to a physical location. He's not confined to a particular building, particular song, particular drum beats, particular style, style of worship. He is here, there, and everywhere. And notice that Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him, not may, not could, but M-U-S-T, must. There's no other way to worship this God who is spirit, but in spirit and in truth. There's no other way to truly worship God than to truly worship him from the depth, depth of our heart according to the truth of his word. And that's what makes worship spiritually vital. And the key here is in the next few verses. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And the reason why the woman can say this basically in, in, in Deuteronomy, I think Moses says, uh, the Messiah will come. The one who will tell you all things. But to her absolute surprise, it must have been. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. She's been talking to him all this time. She's been talking to the only one who can make her worship to be totally spiritually vital, totally and truly alive. In other words, this passage is saying that life comes only through Jesus. So it's one thing to have your worship valid, biblically sound, find it on the Bible. That Bible has to take you to Jesus. Why I have to mention it? Because there are many churches here who probably say the Bible, preach the Bible, but they don't take you to Jesus. Friends, is your worship focused on Christ? Exalting Christ, worshiping him as the one we sang earlier, name above all name, worthy of our praise. Now, how do we know whether our worship is not only biblical, biblically valid, spiritually vital, whether, we have, whether it's founded on the Bible and focused on Christ? That takes us to the last point. Our worship will have a, such a change in our life so it becomes personally vital. That means true worship also flows out into God's mission, that is, his people. Let's look at verses 27 to 30. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
Now notice that the woman left her water jar. Her initial purpose to come to the well is now foregone. She's, in a sense, forgotten all about it. Why? Because she found the true living water. This is the one I've been looking for. And if you know the apostle John who writes the letter, he likes numbers and symbolism. He likes the number three. He likes number four. He especially likes number seven. There are seven I am sayings. Okay? There are seven other things if you look at the book of Revelation. If you think about the woman, how many husbands has she had? She had five husbands. And the woman, she's li- the man she's living now is not her husband, which is man number, which, which, so he's man number six. And now he met, meets the seventh man. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. In other words, he never, she will never find the perfect man until she met Jesus. I often said that our salvation is personal or private. Uh, sorry, personal, but it's never private. It has to be vital. I'm not saying that vital, you know what viral means, right? You talk about it. You talk about it in the way that the woman does it. See a man who taught me all that I have read. Or see what God has done in my life. And remember when Jesus says earlier, if anyone comes to me and receives the water from me, he becomes like what? A spring of living water. And that's what happened to the woman, right? If you look at verse 30, it says, they went out of town and were coming to him. In the Greek, it actually says, they were coming and they keep coming and they keep coming and they keep coming. It's like an avalanche of people coming to Jesus. And it happens because the woman has met the perfect man. The one she's been looking for. So my question to you guys, is this the kind of faith, the kind of worship you have? I'm not, again, not talking about style, not talking about the band, important as they are. But does it transform you in such a way so that you want other people to know about this perfect man who has saved you and loved you? Has it transformed the way you think, the way you love, the way you care about your other people? So let me, the last two, two slides will just be a reminder. Um, next slide, please. So true worship, again, happens when? When yeah, it reorients our life to be less about us and more about Jesus and his mission. It's less about me and my agenda for God, but more Jesus and what God has for us. And very last slide, just to remind us, true worship is basically biblically valid, founded on God's word, spiritually vital, it's connected, yeah? focus on the person of Christ, and finally, personally vital. It has to flow, flow out into the people whom God put around you and probably more. Let us pray.